My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today I'm joined by Lomez. Lomez is um, a shit poster extraordinaire, um, a uh, anonymous poster with a very uh, high power level uh, and a writer. Welcome, Lomez. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm really, I'm really happy to have you on. You are uh, one of my favorite posters, um, and uh, apparently also part of this uh, this cabal that we're all in uh, of of you know taking the the field bucks. Um, you know, getting paid for something for posting. It's it's been really funny because this is like a recent thing. I don't know. All all hell broke loose uh, on in our corner of Twitter apparently because there. Uh, I don't know people think that I don't know this this NRX part of of Twitter is astroturfed or people. I guess this one dude <laughs> who is really spurgy about it. But uh, I don't know what's what's your I don't know what's yeah, your well... take on it. <laughs> Um, I have a few thoughts about this, but, uh, you know, I, uh, have never been on a podcast before. This is my first, uh, podcast I've ever done. And I've said no in the past, but, um, uh, Peter called me the other day and demanded that I go on your podcast. Uh, he said, if I want to continue to feed at the trough, I'd have to go speak with Alex. So here I am, uh, losing my podcast virginity. Uh, yeah, you know, on the one hand, I think it's a good sign that whatever subculture this is, we're already having this debate over selling out. I think that's a natural progression for any subculture. So that's a sign of progress. It's a sign of acceptance on some level into the mainstream that, you know, maybe people who thought of themselves as a part of the subculture, but are getting left behind or aren't quite as prominent in this current iteration of the subculture are feeling, you know, a bit of resentment and that gets projected onto people who are uh, saying things and doing things that are getting a little bit more attention. So it's a good sign. And the thing is, it wouldn't surprise me if Peter Thiel or someone else was paying uh, people in our sphere to write, uh, to speak, to do podcasts, even to post, you know, I think we actually are making some headway into more mainstream kind of thinking. And, you know, to whatever extent, uh, you know, we are heard by people in more prominent positions who have a a bit of a bigger microphone, they seem to be taking on on board our ideas. Uh, So that's good. And anybody who is interested in promoting a meaningful political project at this point, frankly, should be paying us to do this work because, you know, for dollar, dollar for dollar, and I said this the other day, um, this is as good of an, a political expenditure as you're going to get, I think. I mean, it's relatively cheap. You have people throwing around tens of millions of dollars at, you know, candidates who have uh, 
you know, are, are throwing a Hail Mary to try to get into office. And that might move the needle to some degree, but I think the discourse uh, happening online in the Twitter sphere um, moves the needle far more dramatically. Maybe at this point, you know, at some point this will become a more practical political project, but for now it's still uh, about just having these conversations online and, and getting people who might otherwise never hear the kinds of things that we talk about um, to get their ear and, and they hear us. And uh, I think, you know, they like what they hear and are convinced by a lot of it. So it's a good thing. They should pay us. Peter Thiel, I'll say it again. I said it yesterday. If you are listening, I will take your money. I will post for cash. I am not above feeding <laughs> at the trough. And by the way, Alex, maybe you can help me with this. I, there's a bit of confusion here for me, which is why would it be a bad thing if Peter Thiel was paying people money? Is there any sense in which that might like compromise what we're doing? I mean, I, I struggle with even the premise, like it, that it's a bad mm. thing at all. That what I understood there was, um, you know, the fact that this is astroturfed. You know, it, it involves a, a, an um, an analysis of the quality of the posting. You know, the, the people yes. involved in criticizing this were they don't like the fact that BAP apparently speaks like a retard and has some homoerotic <laughs> stuff thrown in there, and it's you know it's not at the level of you know high caliber Bertrand de Juvenel <laughs> analysis yeah. or whatever whatever someone produces or has produced in the past. Um, I'm, I'm sure that there is quite, you know, in-depth political analysis going on in different corners and stuff, but, you know, you, you kind of have to make it spicy. You know, the, the interesting part about this corner of Twitter is that it attracts attention. Like, you know, there, there are girls in Manhattan, you know, like trust fund girls that take pictures with Bronze Age mindset. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a spicy corner that infuses things into the culture. It's not like someone's not going to read, you know, a dissertation. Uh, you know, people don't like Darren Beatty because of his Heidegger dissertation. I'm sure it's extremely good, but, you know, people, that's probably not the most read piece of Darren Beatty. Uh, they like him because he's, you know, he doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> and he's really spicy and he says things, you know, he doesn't care about the about the you know the, the the mores of the of the moment so yeah i think i i kind of understand the you know the 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 beef but at the same time i don't know it feels like a very spurgy moment my browser crashed but we're back you were saying no something interesting about this corner of twitter yeah i mean uh i was just saying that you know people People are, are attracted to this corner of Twitter because it's um, it's spicy, you know. It's it's got it's got cultural panache. It's uh, it it offers something. It is it is a counterculture, you know. I don't want to you know sound like Infowars here, but it is you know this type of you know really edgy conservatism is is a counterculture, and people are attracted to it because of that. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, you know, I was saying also that, you know, Darren Beatty is not at attractive as a character because of his Heidegger dissertation. He's attractive because he's, you know, he says, you know, he doesn't give a fuck. He's just saying things like they are and, and doesn't care for the, um, the, the sanctity of, of, of values that are, you know, holy to the, to the system. So, right. yeah, that, that was kind of my, <laughs> my take too, on it. Yeah. The, part of the appeal of our corner of Twitter is like you said, you know, it's edgy. It has this kind of cachet. It's fun. Okay. People, you know, there, there are good jokes and uh, people like that. People like to have fun. It's not so dour and serious as, you know, typical kinds of political conversations. 
but also I think it serves the role that, um, you know, maybe like libertarianism served for many people uh, in decades past. It was a sort of a collection of interesting sort of precocious uh, people who were willing to talk about subjects that no one else was willing to talk about. Um, you know, I've talked to Moldbug, I've talked to Curtis Yarvin about this, and, you know, Yarvin was a, was a Herman, uh, Hans Hermann Hopp, you know, acolyte back in the day, and, and was a lowercase l libertarian. I don't want to malign him by calling him an uppercase l libertarian, but um, he said one of the big draws for him was that, you know, Hopp was saying things that uh, he had never heard elsewhere, was, was, um, doing a kind of historical analysis that he had never heard before and was raising, you know, questions that he had never even thought, uh, you know, to raise before. And some of the conclusions might have been off or uh, not exactly in line with, with his genuine thinking, but it allowed him some freedom to explore uh, sort of this ideological and intellectual space that had been previously closed off to him. And I think what our corner of Twitter does is invite people into this big room, this big open landscape, an intellectual landscape where they can, without much judgment or without the typical kinds of judgments they would face, you know, in the normie liberal world, um, ask certain kinds of questions, uh, analyze certain features of the landscape that you know, they would have been disallowed from exploring elsewhere. And that freedom is really exciting for them too. And now I think what might happen here and, and what may be already happening to some extent as this collection of people who enter into this space grows, you're gonna find that certain people start gravitating towards certain corners and other people start gravitating toward other corners. And there might be some splitter, splintering along the way but the the fundamental premise, the, the fundamental appeal of this uh, doesn't change, which is you are free here to talk about and explore things that interest you and ask interesting questions um, that are verboten in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's definitely as, as someone who's, who's relatively new to, to Twitter in general. I mean, I, I started posting last August or something. So yeah, it's, it's been a year now, but still, I still feel kind of like a noob. Um, yeah. yeah, that was it. You know, like I remember I got a, someone sent me a, a thread from, from zero HP and I was like, <laughs> is this what's going on on Twitter? <laughs> oh Lord, I should be there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then I signed up like, yeah, in, in a second. So it was, yeah, it's, it's definitely the most generative space it's, it doesn't compare to anything else. Um, and like you said, you know, it's, uh, it's a place where you can leave your crime stop at the door. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's awesome. And, you know, people like me who are just like mingling and, you know, kind of trying to, um, to mine this space for, for all of the genius that is produced there. You know, in a way, I feel like I'm just, you know, shopping around between, I don't know, 
some of the smartest people, obviously on on the earth, and people who are just having fun. You know, they're they're letting their hair down, and it's not serious. Like I feel like a, a lot of times the clash between normie Twitter or you know people who don't come into these these dark waters is that they really take everything seriously, like all the shit posting, so that then they're mm. shocked, but they they don't understand the you know the the mores of the of the field. Like I I know uh, Zero posted something recently about I know that women should be you know wearing face coverings <laughs> and something like that and everyone yeah. shattered brick and I'm like yeah you know you you take him seriously you don't take him literally <laughs> I yeah. understand where he's coming from I you know there's just a, a certain mystique but uh, yeah the, these norms didn't evolve in the west for a reason anyways yeah. uh there's I mean, a lot you know, of he, he might literally mean it so you know he might uh, he might I'm not yeah. gonna I'm not gonna we judge won't him. think less of him for for saying so you know the other thing about it too is you know, you bring up the um, sort of caliber of conversation in this sphere. And uh, yeah, I do think it attracts maybe, it, so it attracts a lot of retards, but, you know, um, the, the kind of like uh, genius retard in a way, the, the idiot savant, um, you know, a lot of defects and, and weirdos. Um, it's a really severe environment, uh, you know, and, and to survive in the environment, you're going to be pushed to certain kinds of intellectual limits and challenged in ways that um, are unusual. And, you know, you're going to be forced to defend certain propositions um, against people who are really well-read and know everything. I mean, you know, there's so much autism in this sphere and, you know, this like incredible genius autism, you know, there's an expert on literally everything and anything you post is subject to, you know, the vetting and criticism of these autistic geniuses. So uh, it's a great way to cut your teeth as well. And maybe on some level, it does recruit people who are, you know, sort of more interesting on on some level or you know smarter you know and there are a lot of really smart people around in our sphere but there's something also about the space itself that conditions the people that come into it in a way that sort of brings out uh their best sort of intellectual uh mind i, I think their best arguments yeah yeah and there's also like this this kind of the spirit of, of camaraderie um of you know kind of being part of the group which in a way works yeah. works against it as well because you, you do tend to get a little bit of group think you know there's some things that you know oh, they're totally. accepted by yeah. the group as being such and then you don't change it though obviously less so than many other groups uh, because we're kind of we're kind of yeah. aware of that the idea that there is group think but um it's the thing that's okay yeah you yeah. know yeah. honestly i would i would defend that um I think, you know, this idea that we all have to come around to these like hyper individualistic points of view on every last critical question is a kind of mistake and um, actually a weakness of, of liberalism and the sort of the liberal project and trusting that you're among a group that shares sort of fundamental virtues and fundamental loyalties. And I mean here, like, intellectual virtues, virtues around sort of honest discussion and honest thought um, that is maybe less dictated by certain kinds of like 
status pressures, for example, are going to produce sort of the best answers to these questions and that it's okay to adopt the points of view of trusted parties, even if it runs counter to your intuition. You know, this is something that for me has been like a major change in my thinking from when I was younger, which is like, you know, I had to think for myself. I have to come up with all these ideas on my own. And um, this uh, sort of knee-jerk contrarianism that you see, like, I think this is what distinguishes maybe us from like the IDW sphere, for example. It's uh, hyper-individualistic and, you know, um, it's a debate culture. Okay, we're going to sit here and like, debate and test each other's ideas through, you know, uh, the contestation of these syllogisms until we arrive at some synthesis or whatever. But I think we're better off, you know, just kind of feeling our way through it. And that comes, that's a social project uh, that comes through when you're around people you trust. I think it's a good thing. I think having that kind of camaraderie and that trust and that willingness to give over your own sort of sense um, in certain cases anyway, of what's right to the group is ultimately uh, a virtue, not a weakness. Yeah, I think you 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 highlight something that that is, I think, the, the central difference between between this kind of new right that's coming up and and you know whatever the IDW was, you know, centrism, IDW centrism, is this this um, suspicion of the the idea the the dimension of the individual. Like, at least for me, that's yeah. been it. Uh, the idea that you know you as an individual can. Uh, you're the only ingredient that's needed for steering your life. And also, you know, we can we can live as, you know, atomized debating individuals in the marketplace of ideas, just sparring and, you know, shaping policy through our through the through the clashing of our ideas. That's just not how things work, unfortunately. Uh, you no. know, in, in debate club, it works. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> probably not even there, uh, but in. Yeah, because in... we would ask it works to what end? I mean, a lot of it is just this kind of intellectual vanity you know you stand up there and you say a lot of big words and you you put together these you know uh rube goldberg goldberg machine arguments but to what effect i mean does this really persuade anyone does this actually um help sort of put forward political projects and and social effects and consequences that you care about maybe to some extent but there's a limitation on that there's definitely a limit on that yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, um, you know, yeah, like you said, it depends what your goal is. If your goal is to be a, a columnist at a, you know, a high profile magazine that, you know, yeah. wants a centrist to explain the world to people and, you know, make them feel secure in their, in their centrism and in the, in the, in the holiness of their ideas of, 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 you know, classical liberalism, that's, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good gig. But if you want to influence yeah. policy, you're going to deal with the tribal creature that is man yeah yep. that's the string think, you have to you know, pull i would point to scott scott alexander as like the best version of this other way of of seeing things and um i think he he gets to a lot of conclusions by way of this uh this sort of this logic and um you know devotion uh, to, you know, evidence and, you know, thinking in this particular sort of scientific way. Um, but it, 
I think it also falls apart on the edges and there are certain questions it can answer and it can, and it can lead to a lot of different perversions. And I think, you know, uh, you know, my own, my own point of view is that on, on the edges, when it comes to like social arrangements, for example, and you look at the sort of polyamorous communities that arise out of these, uh, out of this way of thinking, um, it's unsustainable, I think, firstly, and there's no limiting principle on it. So um, it can lead to all sorts of conclusions that to any sort of commonsensical person, and this is where the high-low meme comes in, like even a retard can recognize, even an idiot can recognize that these things are perverse and bad and unsustainable. Um, but, you know, you can convince yourself with these logical constructions that these things are okay, that they're good, uh, that they serve some kind of utilitarian purpose. And, um, you know, that's the danger. That's the danger. D uh, depending instead on like intuition and sort of communal understanding, I think is a good way to avoid some of those traps. But I don't know, I'm rambling, you know, I'm just riffing here and I, I'm entitled to change my mind on all of this. Of to. course, of course. This is this is what podcasts are for. Yeah. We are here to ramble uh, for the pleasure of the audience. Um, <laughs> yeah, my my issue with most people like Scott Alexander is that they don't scale. If you show me like a thousand bell yeah. curves well, of, of where yeah. where where Scott Alexander's at, you know, like he's gonna be in the tails for most of them. Yeah. I would yeah. say, um, you know, this this isn't a lifestyle that can that can scale. And I think you know, I think for the for the people at the tails, there might be some you know, social arrangements that are, are more, that are better than, you know, the, the, the default in society. But the yeah. problem is that the people on the tails are also typically elites. They also have a big megaphone and they also yeah. tend to want to normalize lifestyles that, you know, that are good for them because, you know, you have that fallacy where you're like, okay, you know, I am this way and, you know, people should have, have the liberty to be like me. But a lot of times yeah. when you change the social default, it's not really a liberty. Um, you know, people just flock to whatever is elite, you know, whatever is, you know, high status. And if you change the high status memes, uh, then you've, you know, saddled, you know, a, a whole generation with single moms because they, you know, they thought that, you know, maybe maybe having a, a husband's not as high status as, I don't know, pursuing right. a career when you actually can only get a job and you're not going to get a Guatemalan housekeeper because you can't afford yeah. her. So it's, uh, it's I don't know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's not nice to do that in a That's way. That's right. And I, you know, I think um, this is the problem of having a society of peasants. Uh, everybody wants to be a peasant. Even the elites want to be peasants. They LARP as peasants. Warren Buffett LARPs as a peasant. Bill Gates LARPs as a peasant. And there's no sense of noblesse obliged. And, you know, this is something that people in our sphere talk about a lot. But one aspect of noble, noblesse obliged is modeling a good prudential life, uh, you know, for people who may not have the cognitive capacity to make the really complex sort of uh, decisions um, that, you know, people at the far end of the, of the bell curve can make when it comes to, you know, whether it's polyamory or, or doing drugs or whatever. And uh, our elites in many, in, in, in a lot of cases, you know, the mainline split, all these sort of the bourgeois bohemianism, you know, that came out of the 60s, um, this is something Amy Wax has talked about quite a bit too. Uh, they have neglected, um, they have been derelict in their responsibility to 
uh, you know, act in accordance with noblesse oblige in a way that models good living for the rest of society. And I think that's a really important thing for people who are smart and capable and have an audience um, should be doing, uh, modeling that life and uh, being prudent. And um, there's a lot of bad models to the right too. So conservatives fail at this all the time, but you know, this is a problem of, of liberalism and this sort of extreme democratization or fake democratization and sort of fake peasant LARPing that our elite class does. Yeah. And it's just, there's this, you know, egalitarian assumption at the, at the core of liberalism that, you know, um, through meritocracy, we all have the same chance to, to, you know, to rise up in the ranks. And what actually happens is that, you know, people who are gifted either through privilege, you know, they, they do have money in their family or, you know, they have opportunities or genetically gifted, you know, they're more intelligent than other people, you know, more assertive, more conscientious, whatever, uh, they rise up in the ranks. And then when they're at the top, they don't really care. They don't really, they don't have, you know, the, the noblesse oblige. They, they don't care about the people at the bottom because no. they are literally meritocratically better than the people at the bottom. And you can sense that, you know, in our elites, uh, you know, they really, they know they're better. And that's, I think, also why the discussion about intelligence is such a, you know, everyone hisses at the, the thought yeah. because it confronts them with the fact that, you know, um, some people you know, you, you're, you're in this position with no fault of your own, but also not necessarily, you know, you've worked your way up, obviously, but being high in conscientiousness and having an IQ of 150 is not really something that you can work at. It's, you know, it's a blessing and you should turn that into something useful for, for other people as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and this is part of the, you know, the big, big critique about the sort of, um, the flattening of hierarchies, the sort of homogenization of culture that goes along with it, this kind of, uh, you know, the, the conservative rhetorician, uh, Richard Weaver, he, he talks about um, the scourge of nominalism at the root of, um, at the root of liberalism and the sort of decay and degradation of American culture in particular in nominalism here, he just means like, you know, the reducing everything to particularities, the specific and, uh, you know, avoiding these sort of universal truths, um, these, you know, about the differences between types of people and their abilities and the universality of, you know, uh, uh, of hierarchies um, and, and cognitive hierarchies and status hierarchies and, gender hierarchies and roles and this nominalism has all these perverse effects you know i I don't know i'm not like a real theory cell so i'm not sure how far i want to follow richard weaver down that road whether nominalism is the true cause of all this i don't know but it's an interesting way of thinking about it it's an interesting angle and certainly seems to present itself in uh you know what we see around us yeah, I think it's it's a it's a useful lens. Is this in uh, ideas have consequences? That's the, exactly that... right. Yeah, which is yeah. a great book, by the way. I I know you asked this question about subversive books. I didn't have this written down, but Richard Weaver would be a good person to put on that list. Both ideas have have consequences, and I think what's the other one? The ethics of rhetoric or the morals of rhetoric, something like that. Um, 
he's a really interesting guy that I think uh, a lot of people in our sphere would could learn a lot from and distills a lot of, um, you know, even the PaleoCon project uh, down into a question of, you know, first principles. And, um, you know, he's really interested in how we use language to sort of instantiate a lot of these beliefs. Uh, so he'd be, he'd be in, and, you know, he's opposed to like this kind of consequentialist morality and these kinds of consequentialist arguments that are so pervasive now in our culture, maybe more than ever, certainly even more than when, when he was writing in the mid-century. So he's definitely someone that I would encourage people to read. Yeah, I've, I've, I've read him back in the day when I was really uh, interested in kind of like the, the PaleoCon project. Uh-huh. And he was he was kind of at the top of, of, uh, of that reading list. And um, yeah. I, I remember That's a little bit of the book. Then. Uh, yeah, do you see, I, I don't know. I don't really pay too much attention to, but do you see his name come up very often? I don't see it very often. Not really. It's actually more kind of a, a boomer book a little bit. I mean, yeah, boomer totally. cons. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah it yeah. hasn't been, it's not as sexy as, you know, the juvenile <laughs> has yeah, been no, I guess lately. Not. And, you know, I think part of what happened too was Weaver, Weaver was sort of recruited into the national review crowd. I think I might have this history a little bit wrong, but I think William Buckley, sort of took a liking to him as well. And, and why wouldn't he? I mean, anybody who could rub two brain cells together recognized that this guy was saying something really interesting. And um, so at the time, you know, everybody, all of these different factions wanted a piece of him. I think I've even seen like neocons try to claim that, you know, he, he had some bearing on what they were saying or doing, but I think that's totally wrong. I think that's a mistake. And maybe that's a reason why he gets ignored in our spheres because Maybe he's associated with like early National Review stuff or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's uh, a lot of people have kind of been repudiating uh, National Review in general, but also yeah. any anyone associated with National Review, except for I think Burnham was associated with National Review. I think early at the yeah, start. Yeah, he, yeah, he was, and uh, there were um, there were a few others too. Uh, oh gosh. Uh, Sobrin maybe too I don't know I don't know all the people associated with early National Review but yeah I mean that was a different time though that was a time when there was room in the mainstream discourse for different voices on the right you know conservatism wasn't this such a constrained sort of you know uh chamber of commerce plus Israel and uh you know evangelical interests I'm allowed to say that by the way um, you know, evangelical interests. Uh, it was it was more diverse, I think, in its thinking. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of ex Trotskyites <laughs> yeah. joined joined the ranks. Um, actually, through through this whole Peter Thiel, you know, conversation that <laughs> started recently. Yeah. Um, you know, the the classical um, criticism that's kind of leveled at this corner is that. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the criticism of, of, of quietism, of, of, you know, of, uh, telling yeah. people to be passive of, of, you know, yeah. kind of biding your time, hiding, you know, doing memes and stuff. And, um, I, I kind of understand why people level that, but I mean, looking at, you know, January 6th 
I also don't because that's kind of <laughs> when people weren't quiet and it wasn't it wasn't a good idea. So I don't know what 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 do you think about this uh, this accusation of you know we're just urging people to you know to to sit down. And in a way, I think that's kind of been tied into yeah. almost like a Fed thing where it's like you yeah. know oh if NRX is so good, why is it essentially doing exactly what you know what I don't know <laughs> the the three letter agencies would want it to do? Just telling people to chill out, stay home, touch grass. Yeah, well, I mean, okay, I have a couple thoughts on this. I mean, first of all, the three-letter agencies don't typically encourage quietism. I mean, when they infiltrate some group, they encourage violence and, uh, you know, actual, like, anarchy because they want to arrest these people. They need cause to arrest these people. So I don't think that's quite right. I think the feds are too stupid to play that kind of, like, 4D chess where they would advise a movement to sort of back off and retreat, um, you know, so that it won't have some practical effect. I mean, all they know is hitting their numbers and getting as many people in jail as they can. Uh, so I, I, you know, that critique I think is wrong. I, I think definitely wrong, but more to the point. So, you know, okay. So Yarvin has his, critique of trying to like subvert the system which is that anything you do to the liberal project in an effort to subvert it will make it stronger it's anti-fragile in that way um it will take all of your energy and like you know perform some kind of like judo act on it and uh and make it stronger so you know there, there you, you need to be um careful you know, he doesn't, he doesn't say do nothing, but I think, but I think Yarvin is definitely encouraging people to be very careful. Uh, you know, Nick Land has his version of this towards like techno capital. Um, you know, the very simple formulation is anything you do to try to subvert, you know, techno capital will just make it stronger. Like, like there's nothing you can do. Um, it will absorb all of your attempts um, to subvert it uh, or critique it and just take it on board and use it to produce, you know, more capital. We see this, you know, and, and maybe that's his explanation or um, for woke capital. And okay, I think maybe that's right on some level. It's, it's a useful guide, but um, I don't know. I consider myself a pragmatist, uh, I guess, which is that um, I, I have trouble thinking that big uh it doesn't amount to much um except for as a useful thought exercise and so when i'm sitting here kind of living my life and you know i got my kids and my family to take care of and you know i want there to be you know communal spaces where i can go you know participate in like a public space and participate in society in a productive way and uh you know i want there to be little league teams and I want my kids to have a school that works for them. And, you know, I want to go to a July 4th parade, you know, in the summer and uh, see the flag being waved. Okay. I know like that's all boomer stuff, but inside of me, there is a boomer, um, you know, somewhere deep down in there. And so, okay, how do I achieve these kinds of things? Um, I take practical steps at local community level uh, where I can, I try to influence political outcomes in my favor, you know, in a kind of 
even if it's in a sort of incrementalist way, maybe Yarvin is right uh, that in the long term, that'll make things more difficult for me. That's, that's very possible, but that's all I can do. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't think beyond those immediate circumstances and maybe that's just my provincial way of thinking. And there's, there's something mistaken about that. Um, but I do think we can effectuate outcomes uh, that are positive for us locally, communally. Um, I, you know, there, it's a separate question of how we do that, like the, the strategies and, and tactics for doing that. But I don't, I wouldn't throw that out as a possibility. You know, I have to, I have to believe in that. I have to carry on and do something locally um, or else what's the point? I mean, I'm not going to just sit inside and do nothing and post all day. Yeah. You know, I want to have community. Yeah. I feel like um, like a, a two pronged approach is probably, you know, it's, it, it just in, in my mind, probably the most promising one, because I do believe that at the, at the level, at the highest level, this is going to change with a, with a changing of the guards. We, we need a new religion, a new global religion or yeah. new, new <laughs> pockets of national religions. Um, because, you know, universal church, sorry, go ahead. Exactly. No, exactly. Exactly. That's it. You know, you kind of want to have the, the grassroots stuff you, you want to do. Yeah. Just make your life good at a local level. Um, you know, that's, that's what I've been trying to do. And, you know, that's yeah. why I moved to, to the sticks in, in Eastern yeah. Europe with this type of stuff, you know, it's, it's coming up, but it's not, it's not here yet. Um, and you also want to, you know, engage in the meme warfare, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm there, I'm on the barricades, you know, sl slinging my little quips, hopefully this, you know, does something. Yeah. Um, but it is, you know, this place, like we talked before, this is where the energy is. It's really wow. interesting. It's intelligent. It's funny. It's, you know, this is super attractive. Like at least to someone like me, I, I just, you know, stumbled upon this space and I'm like, wow, you know, this is interesting. And you can tell this is interesting to more people because, you know, uh, Tucker's writers, they're mining, yeah. they're mining from, from what you guys are producing. Uh, and there's a lot of people kind of flocking to this movement and it, it's got, it's got elite potential. Like the people, I don't know who these anonymous people are, but you know, they're really smart and I'm sure they're like serious people in, in real life as well a lot of them you know they're, they're part of you know the, the upper strata of their of their community some of them i'm sure some of them are just neats in basement sure but yeah. a lot of them are, are important people so they're, they're probably influencing this stuff yeah. at, at a different level as well so i'm i'm hopeful yeah no i think that's right and uh yeah maybe you know i think it's a mixed bag uh you know i think there are in our spaces uh people who are at the tip of the meritocratic spear you know and and are in their real lives uh, a part of the cathedral, to, to use a term that I think we can all understand. Um, and I do think it's penetrating. You know, Tucker talks about it, and uh, it's reaching boomers. It's reaching the grill Americans, you know, the Americaners. They're, they're coming around, um, and that's important. And I think, you know, in this question of quietism, there's a huge uh, – part of the spectrum between quietism and then like, you know, doing what the feds want you to do, which is arming yourself and getting a group of guys to put on, you know, Hawaiian shirts and storm, whatever your state, you know, Capitol building is. Um, we can do a lot in between that space. Some things will work better than others. 
one thing I'm suspicious of is anybody who claims to know how this is going to work and what strategies will work the best and what tactics will work the best. You know, you look at somebody like Chris Rufo and what he's doing with CRT. Okay. I, you know, I like Chris a lot. I think Chris is great. Um, he's doing, he's accomplishing more, more or less on his own than the entire conservative establishment has done in the last 10 years. And he deserves a lot of credit for that. And we should all be thankful for people like him. Um, you know, trying to make a positive difference. It's possible he fails, okay? It's possible that his project just gets swallowed by the liberal sort of Leviathan, and, and that it's probably even likely, but that's okay. You know, even that in the failure might be a good thing in the end, uh, you know, to convince certain people who might be on the fence about the, um, efficacy of, you know, going to their school board meetings and, and protesting this stuff, you know, uh, convincing them that there's there's a limit on what they can do, that these powers that are trying to, you know, subvert their way of life and, 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 and sort of turn their children into janissaries for the new religion um, are not going to be stopped by these uh, sort of more traditional ways of doing things politically, and they might have to opt for alternatives, and that's okay, that's fine. But that doesn't that doesn't mean that you know Chris Rufo shouldn't do what he's doing. We still need him out there to do that, to either prove that it can work and that he can actually make this change, or prove to people uh, that that kind of thing doesn't work, and they're going to have to opt for alternatives. So I think we just keep throwing stuff at the wall. We take what positive energy we can produce, try to, you know, uh, accumulate some wins, um, get people like Tucker to start talking about us uh, or, you know, not us. I, I don't, you know, this isn't an ego thing. So, no, I, I don't mean that. Talking about these ideas, um, you know, people in the New York Times talking about these ideas, uh, maybe not the New York Times, although... Um, Ross, Boss Ross has, uh, has, has mentioned our sphere a few times, but I think this is growing and uh, making some small difference, and that's good. That's all we could hope for. Yeah, absolutely, and it's a, I don't know, it's a, it's a, it's a weird time to be in this space. It is, it feels like, it, you know, something's moving, people are, are yeah. catching on to this. And it might just be that, you know, the internet is a different type of beast. Because, you know, like, for example, Yarvin always talks about, okay, what is the historical precedent? You know, has this happened mm -hmm. before? But, you know, and the internet is a preference cascade machine. It's here mm -hmm. to seed you with all sorts of ideas like you know i didn't know about all many of these ideas like you know just a few years ago i was like squarely idw before that you know i i have a i have a, um, a degree in gender studies like you can imagine what, what type of mindscape i had you know even just 10 years ago so things change fairly rapidly and you know people might say oh you're a, you're a flip-flopper no i'm just i'm just trying to trying <laughs> to find truth guys um yeah. but you know things things do change pretty fast and um obviously 
it's it's hard to cede this to the to the to the normie, you know, to to get people yep. on on board. But I think me magic is probably the best the best you know pill to to serve them. You know, it's it's yeah. wrapped in it's wrapped in ridicule. It's wrapped in outrage. It's wrapped in 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 contrast. You know, that just shows people. It's wrapped in noticing. We notice real yes. hard in this in these corners. So, um, yes. yeah, and and people notice, especially people who live in the real world, who are not like in gated communities or somewhere, or you know, who just have to deal with stuff that actually happens. Yeah, I think, you know, that's right. And the internet does change things. Um, our friend James Poulos, you know, he's talked a lot about the ways that, you know, digital technology kind of has changed everything. And those of us who are still trying to make sense of what's going on through the lens of, you know, the last century, the last 50 years, the, what he calls the televisual age, are making a, a, a category error in that analysis. and. Um, those lessons uh, don't really apply. Um, you know, digital technology does change a lot. Um, you know, one, I don't know if this is, this is sort of tangentially related, but um, I think it works, you know, on both sides. Okay, so one thing, one thing um, you know, I've talked about is the way that digital technology is just feeding us this like constant hyperstimulus. And uh, we're always confronted with these major events, you know, and um, we're conditioned to encounter these major, like monumental, life-changing events every day. Um, there's a writer, uh, this guy, Jim Harrison, I remember reading an essay by him. This is an American-centric point, but, you know, he said life is sort of like uh, driving, you know, taking a road trip through the west have you ever driven through like western united states no, i've never been okay, to the so, u.s yeah oh oh okay so if you drive <laughs> through like the west you know um there's just so much open land and you know you'll take a 20-hour road trip or something and there's like two cities along the way but it's just open empty space it's it's mostly nothing and he said this is kind of like how life is and most of life isn't these like critical, important moral choices or these sort of monumental events. It's mostly just driving through empty landscape sort of from and to these, these major moments. Okay, I don't, maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong, but, but it's a useful way to think about how the internet then, what it gives us is this constant, um, you know, there's, there's a city there's a huge city every mile. Okay, every day, we come into contact with this major sort of emotional confrontation with the state of the world, or uh, you know, when people like are watching these videos online, it's just these little dopamine hits of you know major life moments at all times, and everything is like the funniest thing ever, or you know, it's someone crying or whatever. Um, and this hyperstimulus. I think in a lot of ways has caused what amounts to like mass psychogenic illness. And uh, we have a lot of people who are living in a kind of um, they're sick, they're just sick and uh, they need to log off. And I think, you know, a lot, a lot of how we understand our politics and um, sort of the urgency of what's going on right now is just a function of this hyperstimulus and the 
mistaken belief that the next thing we do and the next thing that happens is going to be the most important thing. Uh, so what's the point of all of this? I guess it's, um, you know, to get back to the question of, of quietism maybe, or how we proceed through this, through this landscape is to practice a little bit of patience. Um, that's okay too, and not be so quick to try to make immediate gestures toward sort of radical or revolutionary change. We have to wait for the right moments and the right moments aren't necessarily around the corner, even if they might feel like it because we've been conditioned uh, to feel as if every moment is of critical importance. Again, I'm totally rambling here. This is just um, completely off the cuff. So I don't know if there's any value to that, but um, anyway. No, no, I, I I agree with that. I think it's um you know it's 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 all around this um, these hyper real events you know that essentially mm -hmm. politics is constructed around these like January sixth you know for, for someone yeah. on the other side January sixth is you know the, the this crazy event nine eleven it's extremely yeah and by the way they believe it it's not yeah, a, yeah. they're not like pretending that this matters you know for some kind of like political gain. They really do mean it. I mean, they really do feel as if, uh, you know, our, our democracy almost ended. The Republic almost was finished on that day, that there was an actual coup attempt on that day. It's not, it's not merely an act. I mean, there are some cynical actors who are taking advantage of the moment um, for their own reasons. But by and large, the people who say that stuff, these like, you know, shit lib resistors, they really do mean it. Yeah, absolutely. I think even even AOC means it. I mean, I could, I could yeah. imagine even even her. She's just bathing in in this mind virus. And obviously, if someone knocks at her door on January sixth, she will think that you know it's a it's a gang of you know crazed people trying to murder, rape her. Um, yeah. You know, I could I could believe that. You know, but it's just because they're just you know marinating in this group psychosis, uh, and yeah, it's easy totally. to see from the outside, but. <laughs> well, so, and we need to be careful about doing that ourselves is getting caught up in this, this kind of same psychosis, you know, uh, be patient, trust the plan, trust the plan, everybody. Um, yeah, yeah, that didn't turn out so well. <laughs> we, I was, no, I was I pretty mean, sure I was almost making bets. I didn't, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I don't know. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm being uh, a little facetious when I say that, but as a general matter, um, you know, being patient, you know, uh, is, is not such a bad thing. Um, you don't want to get caught up in, in mass psychosis if you can avoid it, obviously. Yeah. And, and there's a, another big event. This one actually is, is not a non-event. It's actually a big event, uh, that you've written about recently is, uh, is Afghanistan. Oh, yeah. Uh, and this is kind of on, on the, on the scene right now. Everyone's looking at it. Um, it does seem to be, uh, kind of a, a mask off moment for, uh, our elite class, especially the expert class and, you know, all of these people that, uh, apparently, you know, because essentially what happened is, you know, the, the, the the most advanced military in the world, uh, you know, the most you know money heavy, the most technical, the most you know expert heavy, has been beaten you know swiftly in in a matter of what days hours by a troop of goat herders. Um, you know, in in yeah, it, it's absolutely incredible. You know, if if anyone you know if you 
have had aliens come in and say, you know, put a bet on this uh, conflict. You know, they they never guess in a million years that this could happen. Uh, so, I mean, what what was going on there? You know, is is this a pivotal moment in, in how people see experts, or is this another you know hyper real you know event that they're going to spin? Um, that's an interesting question, and I, and I don't quite know. I mean, um, part of the problem here is adopting you know the frame of mind of a normie who is just kind of like witnessing the collapse and fall of, of Kabul, like out of context. I mean, there's a lot of us, uh, I would include myself in this group, but you know, anyone who's been paying attention to foreign policy for the last, you know, decade has understood for a long time that this war was going nowhere, was a losing cause, that whatever our objectives were, uh, we weren't getting any closer to achieving. Um, or anyways, the objectives were, were becoming like sort of increasingly abstract and nebulous and impossible to measure. Um, and it was becoming just this uh, sort of morass of, of delusion and uh, naivety and, you know, a kind of like feminist, uh, you know, human rights thing that, that could only lead to disaster. Okay, so everything that we saw happen in the last two weeks is a confirmation of what I think most people who were looking at this conflict probably already believed. It doesn't add any new information, really, um, except maybe to the extent that, uh, you know, and this is why I say, you know, for normies, though, looking at this, maybe this does add new information. They're seeing now for the first time, again, that, um, you know, this, this, this international sort of military, what uh, apparatus, what, what Darren Beattie affectionately calls the gay, um, that it's, that it does not serve Americans' purpose. It does not even serve its own ostensible purpose. You know, what it claims to want to achieve, it can't even achieve. So then I think maybe what the normie is asking himself is, what is the point of this thing? What is the point of this apparatus, this expenditure, um, all of the rhetoric that supports this apparatus? What is the point of it? And that question can lead maybe to some uncomfortable places that I think, uh, is very useful for us. And um, I think militates in our favor. And so in that sense, it is a good thing. I think, I think maybe, you know, uh, this will bring some substantial amount of people around to our way of thinking, perhaps. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, I just, you know, maybe this is all cope, okay? Like, like you said, maybe this is just another hyper real event that nobody will care about. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I think it is probably for most people, but if you look at, you know, like the, the, the Floyd riots, you know, the George Floyd riots, they tried to make that into a hyper real event. You know, they're like, you know, mostly peaceful protests while literally there was, you know, a building burning in the background and things like that. So I think 
their capacity to make this a hyper real event is is limited, you know, in the sense that they will have to explain to people that, you know, Kabul fell in a matter yeah. of X X days. You know, that's that's uh, you know, they they're probably spinning it, but you know, the the, the core of it, you know, the, even I under the narrative is nuts. Yeah. And each time they do this, the cost the cost accrues, okay? And so any single one of these failures and their attempts to paper over it or explain it away, you know, um, as caused by some bogeyman or enemy, whether it's Trump or Putin or, you know, white supremacist, whatever. Um, each time they try to do this, uh, first of all, there's, there's diminishing returns on this. Like, like it, it, it works less and less each time. And then more and more people in each instance uh, sort of reject that frame. Um, I saw this in my in my personal life. I happened to be close to some people who, you know, were in proximity to some of these summer riots, and might have otherwise been described as like normie libs, although maybe maybe uh, like conservative curious. Okay, as as this as that summer unfolded, certainly not Trump friendly. Definitely not Trump friendly. But after that happened, there was definitely a, a change. And uh, I think, it, again, it had to do with their geographic proximity to these riots. But, you know, they're, they're changed people now. They're politically changed. They are completely disillusioned with the idea that, you know, the Democrats, for example, represent uh, like sobriety and responsibility and you know what's going to save us is more of this kind of uh, politics. I saw um, you know Sam Harris had some tweet <laughs> today or yesterday about being embarrassed about you know supporting what he called the adults in the room in, in reference to Joe Biden. I don't know how sincere that is. I mean, uh, he's he's full of shit and he's like a neocon and will stay that way. I don't expect him to change, but that sentiment reaches some amount of people and those people do change. They're still malleable in their beliefs. So, you know, yeah, it does. It moves the needle some each time. And eventually you reach a tipping point. You reach some critical threshold where enough people have become disillusioned and they look for alternative answers. Have we reached that with Afghanistan? Probably not, but we're getting closer. Yeah, like you said, each each of these uh, events is a is a piece in the puzzle, and it's probably going to move you know a, a bunch of people. Everyone probably not. Um, do you think that you know now that the the military industrial complex and I don't know the, the NGO super state um, hasn't has, doesn't have a chew toy to to play with like they did in Afghanistan? Where are they gonna they're gonna focus <laughs> their their energies? <laughs> Who are they coming yeah. for? Yeah, well, um, you know us. Uh, you know, they, they've already constructed this thing called like white supremacy and, you know, and, and that's folded under this umbrella of domestic terrorism. And I expect that to ramp up. I mean, almost immediately after, uh, Kabul fell, I saw Ian Bremmer, who's one of these like think tank, you know, expert class foreign policy um, Flax. I think he's at Stanford or somewhere like that. Anyway, he was on some CNBC show saying, you know, really, 
this is a good thing because um, you know we, we're done dealing with terrorists abroad. The real threat are the terrorists here at home. You know, the the white supremacists, and and so there's an obvious opportunity for you know funding and you know you know the ADL and the SPLC um, for funding organizations and think tanks that you know are uh, ostensibly meant to eradicate right-wing extremism or whatever they call it um you know this will fund some sinecures at these you know um organizations that are affiliated with antifa and you know i expect there to be money thrown at these docs rings um so that'll be some of it but i think you know it can only go so far because the truth is that there really isn't uh, a real sort of threat from, um, you know, whatever we're calling white supremacy or, or right-wing extremism. Um, they might produce some threats. They might produce some real extremists. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put them past it to do that. And then the rest of it will go to, I don't know, China. I mean, that seems the obvious answer. We'll just become increasingly belligerent uh, to China. And under the pretext of human rights still, you know, we have this Uyghur situation. And, and again, you know, Darren Beatty's really good about this. He, he talks about this quite often, how that is a pretext to continue this same line of argument and this same foreign policy directive, but in a way that conservatives, uh, you know, can get behind because you know, it, it owns like Nike or Apple or something, you know, it's like they can own the libs, but it's really to the benefit of the same uh, gay complex. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's quite terrifying. <laughs> so I'm, I, yeah, it my, is terrifying. Yeah, my hope is that, you know, their, their obvious incompetence is going to be a, um, a stumbling block. And the fact that, you know, there is, there is a groundswell in the other direction, hopefully. I feel so. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much of this, you know, like you said, is is you know my echo chamber or you know the, the the stuff that you know looks big to me is, might not be groundswell. Might just be a you know a, a fart in the wind. <laughs> but it's, it yeah, sounds real maybe, loud. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You go look at the things that you know. Some people who have. So this one of the problems is like uh, you can go online and find like a prominent person who has made any you know has taken up like any position no matter how extreme or bizarre and you can use that as an example of some like broader trend when in fact it could just be this one person who's saying this stupid thing okay but uh you know you do have a number of people in positions of uh you know influence who are trying to push this narrative around domestic terrorism and you know this this woman juliet kayam i think that's how you pronounce her name she's a She's a Harvard fellow. She worked in Obama State Department. She was the counterterrorist, you know, czar or something at, at the State Department. I think she even briefly worked at the New York Times, but was fired for lying about something or other. In any case, um, you know, she she immediately went on CNN and was talking about Trump as uh, we, we need to treat him the same way we treat like the head of ISIS, um, you know, and that we need to... Uh, you know, take the head off the snake. Now she's speaking in metaphor, but only barely. Okay. Only barely. And I don't think, you know, she's, she was first in line to recommend a no fly list for uh, people who aren't, aren't vaccinated. 
And that, for example, is a way to conflate, you know, um, the sort of COVID regime with this sort of anti-Trump sentiment. And there is a lot of overlap there, but it allows them to use the tools of the state and the power of the state and this sort of, you know, biosecurity, uh, you know, surveillance apparatus and, and bring it down on the heads of, of Trump supporters. So COVID is also another natural sort of permanent crisis that can be used uh, in opposition, you know, to, to who they, who, who the, the sort of elite, the, this sort of establishment class, what, you know, BAP calls the, the occupational class, who they identify as their enemy, as their, as their threat, as a threat to their uh, dominion uh, over the state. Yeah, COVID's turned out to be a, a shocker in this direction. I remember at yeah. the beginning, it was it was just kind of like the right wing that was into into yeah. masks, into taking the threat seriously. Yeah. They were kind of putting out the, you know, this is racism thing. Uh, but then it slowly flipped. And I think it also ties into the fact that there is a lot of power, a lot of... Um, a lot of uh yeah essentially essentially power to be mined out of uh out of this um yes. this situation for them yes. so, uh, and it, and aligning the narrative that you should just give away all of your autonomy and we are uh, we are the giver of freedoms like today there was a thing that oh in australia they're giving giving out new freedoms oh my god rejoice uh no that's not how it works is that the state's not holding on to the freedoms and it's like giving it out you know you have your freedoms like that was the thing in the anglosphere wasn't it like you have your freedoms and the state does yeah. not encroach uh, on them uh but it's yeah. you know it's it's it, it aligned it perfectly with just staying in your house and you know eating the bugs you know doing Online. doing exactly yeah, yeah exactly yeah but you know what's interesting about covid was it was a crisis teed up for trump okay he could have taken advantage of it and i think that explains the early sort of rhetoric around it uh from libs you know that this was racist and that we should just calm down and we'll treat this as as we've treated you know other you know, uh, respiratory viruses that have, you know, crossed um, uh, the Atlantic from China, you know, whether it was SARS or whatever else in the past. And um, Trump kind of deferred. He just decided not to take advantage of this crisis. And they did. Okay, so they took the lead on this. Once, once it became clear that Trump wasn't going to do anything with this, though he could have, and a lot of people talked about early on, like, this was perfect for so much of what Trump was trying to accomplish and talking about. And, you know, we could have used it as an excuse to close the borders. We could have used it as a cudgel against China. We could have done so much with uh, this. And um, Trump just, I don't know. I don't know what was going on in the White House. You know, I, I suspect a lot of this had to do with his obsession with the stock market and concerns that, you know, this would, this would cause like, catastrophe, which it did anyway, at least temporarily. Um, and so, yeah, and, and I think, uh, you know, Democrats realized then after Trump decided not to do anything with the crisis that they would, and it's worked really well from them for them. And there's no reason for them not to continue using COVID as a, as a permanent crisis, um, you know, despite whatever objections, you know, people might have against it, because ultimately people are afraid. They're afraid of you know, bodily harm, um, perhaps irrationally so, uh, but will give up power to the state in order to maintain their safety. Yeah. And that's that's and, the fundamental purpose of the state, you know, at least the modern state. 
Exactly. And the, the thing is, it's, it is essentially a left-wing crisis, you know, you know, this is the direction in which the, the state swims. This isn't, you know, it's, it's very hard in a way to capitalize on it from a, from a right-wing direction. Cause it's like, okay, we're just going to expand the state. We're going to yeah. take over all of this stuff. Uh, we're going to subsidize this through, you know, printing money. This is, this is all, you know, uh, left, left-wing fantasy land, UBI stuff. Um, yeah, totally. we, we are coming up on time a little bit because I need to Okay. Go. Yeah, sure feed my baby. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, go do that. Uh, I want to ask you the question of the show. You kind of answered it, but I want to let you uh, add on to it if you have any other uh, nominees. Uh, we've got uh, Richard Weaver, is it? Uh, Ideas Have Consequences. Yeah, yeah um, that's a good one. Um, I would add here to, you know, uh, T.S. Eliot wrote um, a short essay or, you know, a short book, long essay called um, Notes on the Definition of Culture. And uh, he, he was writing this in the 40s, I believe. And he was noticing um, some, some of what we were talking about earlier, which is this trend of like sort of democratization, this flattening of class and, uh, you know, hierarchy. Um, of course, we still have class in this, you know, in our society and we have hierarchy, but it's ignored and it's, and, and it fluctuates a lot. There's a lot of instability in it. And um, T.S. Eliot makes an interesting argument that this kind of instability, this flattening of hierarchy uh, has this really negative effect on culture, which is it turns everything into pop culture, um, you know, uh, mid-brow culture. There's no high art anymore. And, and he explains how, you know, a kind of aristocracy through generational aristocracy through um you know family and tradition is how you produce high art and a lot of what ails us is that we are missing high culture and so i think it's a i think it's a good argument for people on our side to keep in mind um as a defense of the kinds of prescriptions for our social arrangements that that we would prefer so yeah t.s Eliot. you know of course t.s Eliot's poems are all actually pretty relevant now too i'm thinking of like the wasteland and you know what he had to say about the eternal city um as this kind of like nexus of progressive politics and progressive meaning and the, you know the pro progressive project sort of instantiated in, in the welfare of the city and, and its decay and degradation. You know, I think that's very relevant to what's going on right now. It might be of some use um, for people on our side to read, though it's not his best poem, but I think it's good enough. Yeah, I think there's there's a, a, a big point to be made there about, you know, the, the, the perennial elites, you know, the fact that, you know, there, even though a, a lot of what's happening on the right is, you know, a populist movement, uh, mm -hmm. it, it all kind of the heads have to be there and they have to be worthy of leading. And there's a whole kind of building of, of worthy elites that needs to happen from this end, uh, which is yeah. pretty, pretty, pretty heavy, pretty you know, hard. But I would also, I would also um, add, I'm just thinking of this now is uh, uh, Huntington's um, who are we? He wrote this book sort of trying to make sense of what America was and, and like American identity. And I think he makes a really strong case against the sort of a proposition nation argument, you know, that, that America is just a nation of ideas, that there's, you know, just like this uh, a combination of magic dirt and a constitution 
that will um, ensure that the republic sort of carries on in perpetuity, you know, in a healthy state. And um, Huntington very clearly demonstrates, no, this is a nation of people. It, it's a nation of uh, traditions that precede the Constitution, um, of, of Western traditions in particular, of Protestant uh, Western traditions. And um, I think it's very important for, you know, a lot of people on our side sort of like understand this intuitively, but I think Huntington um, provides a very rigorous uh, defense of that point of view. Yeah, I agree. And, and people should probably read um, Albion's Seed as well for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, uh -huh. uh, yeah it's, it's not the history of Romania, guys. It's going to be, it sounds, sounds quite, <laughs> quite different. It's got yeah. a different slant to it. <laughs> but yeah, this, this was a, a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for coming yeah. on to this podcast as you were, you know, Absolutely. popping your podcast cherry. I'm happy to, <laughs> happy to have yeah. been first. <laughs> Yeah, I hope it went well. A lot of rambling. I hope people are okay with that. They're That's what they're tuning in for, the rambling right. of their favorite posters. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, is there any place you want to point people to? I know you have new essays uh, in uh, The American Mind. You've, you've had one in American Greatness yeah, as well. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, sure. You know, if you want to read that, great. Um, you know, I guess my Twitter account. And uh, I have this new Teal initiative that I'll be starting soon. Um, He's, he's financing a series of books that I plan on uh, writing in the next six months or so, along with my other uh, patrons um, who, uh, who I won't say by name. But, um, but yeah, that'll be coming soon, and I'll, I'll be sure to let people know about that when it happens. Yeah, excellent. Count me in. I mean, I'm, I'm awesome. there. You know, at the trough meeting, we'll, I'll see you there yeah. anyway. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Perfect. Thanks so much for coming on. All right, Alex. Take care. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you. <laughs>